Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotso, and I am an editor at Refdem. It is my great pleasure to host Roosevelt Montas today. Welcome to the show, Roosevelt. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Roosevelt Montas is senior lecturer in American Studies and English at Columbia University in New York City. He holds a PhD in English and Comparative Literature from the same university, which he received in 2004. He has acted as the director of the Center for the Core Curriculum at Columbia College from 2008 to 2018, and is currently the director of the Center for American Studies, Freedom and Citizenship Program in collaboration with the Double Discovery Center. He specializes in antebellum American literature and culture and has a particular interest in American citizenship. He teaches Introduction to Contemporary Civilization in the West, which is a year-long course on primary texts in moral and political thought as well as seminars in American studies, including freedom and citizenship in the United States. He speaks and writes regularly on the history, meaning, and future of liberal education, and has just published a fascinating book titled Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Now, this book of yours, Roosevelt, offers a discussion of the work of four very prominent authors, a meditation on how each has helped you make sense of your own life, and also a critique of the practice of liberal education in the contemporary university. You write in the concluding part, and I'm quoting, that mm -hmm. the animating argument of this book is for liberal education as the common education for all, not instead of a more practical education, but as its prerequisite. And you also write that one of the dangers facing American higher education and American civil, civic culture in general is a return to a time when liberal education was the exclusive province of a social elite, end of quote. Now, early on in the book, you assert that general education curricula can equip students for civic life and social agency, and even state that the possibility of democracy hinges on the success or failure of liberal education. So shall we begin our conversation perhaps right there with the questions, why you think of liberal education as such a prerequisite for more practical forms of education and why you claim that the possibility of democracy hinges on its success. Thank you. Um, and it's a really an honor for me to be here with you and to be um, engaging in this, I think very, very important conversation. I, I appreciate um, you inviting me and appreciate the careful reading you have given my work. It's a great, um, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an honor, it's flattering to have a, a, an attentive reader. So I appreciate that from you. Um, I guess I would begin by emphasizing the roots of liberal education. Uh, liberal education um, is formulated in, in ancient Athens, in the, in the democracy of Athens. And it is a, 
uh, a contrast term. That is, liberal education is contrasted with slave education or with servile education, sometimes call it vulgar education. Um, it was an education for the elite. And by what I mean by the elite there is education for the citizens of Athens. Athens is a direct democracy, so the citizens are involved in the creation of laws, in the formulation of foreign policy, in office holding, in serving on juries, in serving on the army, in formulating strategies. Citizens are directly involved in this. Then there's a huge non-citizen population made up um, mainly of slaves, but also of foreigners. And then, of course, women didn't have full citizenship but qualified citizenship. So in this complex society where one portion of the society is um, engaged in the project of self-governance, in the project of formulating every aspect of communal life, the question arose, what kind of education would prepare an individual for such roles? Um, as opposed to the kind of education that would be offered to, to others. And that, that, that other kind of education would be specific to whatever function they played. If you are a household servant who needs to know economics and the market and cooking, and then that education would be about that. Or if you work in the fields, that education will be about that. If you're a craftsman, that education will be about that. Well, what about the education of the citizen who has to formulate laws, who has to debate in court, who has to debate in parliament, who has to weigh in... Um, complex social policy. Um, that's the origin of liberal education. Liberal education um, in the contemporary world, when we aspire to a full democracy, that is when we have extended the role of citizenship to the universal population, um, with some, with, with few exceptions. And of course, every country will have its own, every even democratic country will have its own specific formulations of who qualifies for citizenship. But the, to put it simplistically, we, we um, in, in modernity, in, in, in most Western societies, are committed to this idea of universal democracy. It's representative democracy rather than direct democracy. But even so, with that extension of the duties of citizenship, comes the idea of liberal education for all. The question still remains about how do you educate a population so that they can engage in the very amorphous, complex, nuanced, often messy process of thinking through social questions. How do we equip an individual to most fully participate in our collective project of self-determination, of shaping our collective future. Well, it's clear that an individual who's going to be prepared for that, as it was the case in ancient Athens, is gonna to need to know something about history, something about where we got here and how state actors have behaved in the past and, and learn something about the way that, that international um, relations work. And, and uh, it's clear that this person is gonna to need to understand something about the economy. And this person is going to understand, need to understand a lot about science in our contemporary world and, 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 and the cost and benefits of different approaches to, say, global climate change. And this person is going to need to understand something about religion and psychology and philosophy. In fact, there is no area of human understanding and human learning that doesn't concern the kind of education that is aimed at this broad capacity for self-governance. 
there's another aspect to that capacity of self-governance too that, that, that is less to do with the collective and with the individual. When you are in a position of self-determining your life, when you get to determine for yourself your own conception of good, when you get to organize your life according to your own vision of your goals and your, uh, and your own good, um, what will I study? What will I work? When will I marry? Will I marry? What's my sexual orientation? What music will I listen to? What will I eat? All of these questions that come with the territory of being free, nobody's making those decisions for you. That's another aspect of self-governance that requires the same kind of education. How do you prepare an individual to most effectively navigate their own personal freedom? So liberal education, even to this day, addresses itself to the condition of the individual as an autonomous agent. Now, there's, of course, a long philosophical tradition of debating of to what extent we're actually free, to what extent do we have uh, free will, or to what extent are we conditioned or determined or constrained by historical, social, um, even biological forces. Um, but, but putting that debate aside, phenomenologically speaking, we experience ourselves as free agents. We experience ourselves as self-determining individuals. Um, and liberal education addresses itself to that condition, which is an existential condition. Um, therefore, democracy, the possibility of a collective exercise of self-governance depends on the preparation that individuals engaged in that collective, that are part of that collective, have to fulfill those, uh, those areas. Um, now, on the question of it being a basis, a foundation, a prerequisite to other kinds of education, um, every profession, every task, every occupation in our society is done by a human being. Whether you're an engineer or a doctor or a scientist or a businessman or a politician, there is a fundamental basic human commonality. Um, we all um, face the same kinds of existential, social, uh, psychological realities. And liberal education addresses itself to that first. That is whether you are going to be a physician or an engineer or a politician or a businessman, having the kind of self-awareness and the kind of humanistic development and cultivation that squares accounts that settles, that, that centers you in your own human condition will make you a more effective, a more humane, a more um, uh, uh, skilled practitioner of whatever profession you determine. One other thing I would add, add to that is that even in the United States, we have increasingly come to see college education, university education as exclusively professionalizing. That is the, the, the central, sometimes exclusive goal of university education is to equip you to fulfill a profession, to do a career. Um, and um, that is a, a big mistake in part because it neglects the fundamental condition of the individual that goes into college. Um, and it is a, a, a lost opportunity. My argument is that liberal education ought to be embedded into every career. That is that, that, that 
if when you go to university, you should not should not have to choose between, say, being a lawyer or an architect or an engineer or a software developer or be or studying liberal liberal arts. But that the liberal arts should be embedded in the curriculum of every single career, every single uh, profession, because beyond the professional capacity that an individual is to fulfill in society, there is a more basic citizenship role that an individual has to fulfill in society. And we ought to take that seriously and include it as part of the university education. That's a really wide-ranging and really fascinating answer. And I wanted us to delve also a bit more into some of the specifics uh, of the argument uh, of your book, because, you know, you really try to bring the reader closer to the experience of liberal education through encounters with some of the human questions that lie at its heart, as you write in the book. And you do this through intriguing discussions of four major authors that have deeply influenced the way you think about such human questions. And those are Plato, St. Augustine, Sigmund Freud, and Mahatma Gandhi. So could I ask you why you chose to organize your book, Rescuing Socrates, around these ideas and insights of these four specific authors and what their joint discussion is meant to add up to? Thank you, yes. Um, my book is in, in, in part a memoir. That is, it is in part a reflection on my own life, on my own development. Um, and part of the reason why I chose, I chose to write such a personal book in arguing for liberal education is that liberal education is a very experiential, um, to be redundant, an experiential experience. It is, it is a phenomenon that is rooted in the actual experiencing of the phenomenon, you know, imagine going to to a concert. Uh, you know, whether what you like is rock and roll or or Beethoven or you know, go to a symphony, and you sit there for two hours and you hear, you experience the music, you experience the 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 performance, you experience the reaction of the audience, you experience the moment, and then you go outside and you can tell your partner, your friend, oh, it was great. People clapped, people were excited, people were moved, people were in tears. But that is nothing compared to the experience of the music, right? The music unfolds in time. And what it does to you is, uh, is inseparable from the experience. The same happens with liberal education. Um, and so books about liberal education or arguments about liberal education, it's like when you read the concert report in the newspaper the next day and, uh, well, it was a very nice concert. The conductor did this, the performer did that, and it gives you some sense of it, but it doesn't transform you. It doesn't move you. It doesn't, um, in any way replicate the experience. So that is a challenge when you try to convey to people the value of liberal education, why liberal education is worth doing. So one way that I tried to uh, give a better taste, a better sense of the experience is by drawing people, drawing the reader into a personal narrative of what this did to me. Um, and what this, that is the liberal education based on the study of, of great books, by giving them then a taste of what studying those great books are like. What are the ideas in those great books? 
that in my own particular case were transformative? How did they help me think about my particular life and my particular place in the world? Um, these four thinkers, St. Augustine, Plato, Sigmund Freud, Mahatma Gandhi, had a very uh, profound impact in my development. And in some way that is accidental. It's, you know, my own particular life where I was developmentally when I encountered them, uh, what I was grappling with, what I was thinking about, what I needed in my life. So in a way, it is uh, idiosyncratic or arbitrary. Why those four? On the other hand, there is something about those four texts that um, that that brings them together. And, and, and this I've only come to think of in, in, in retrospect. That is, after I wrote the book, and people often ask me, why these four? And I said, well, you know, it's they just happen to be four authors that had a big impact on me. But but then it 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 kind of became evident to me that one thing that uh, characterizes those four thinkers is their commitment to self-examination. Um, you know, Socrates is famous for saying that the unexamined life is not worth living, and that his practice of philosophy involved the examination of self and the examination of others. Um, and St. Augustine's Confessions is, a, is an autobiography, it's a self-exploration of his inner life and his inner evolution towards God and Christianity. And of course, Sigmund Freud's whole career is about understanding the mind and understanding how, um, how the human psyche works. Mahatma Gandhi also dedicated his entire life to what he called spiritual realization, what he called the fulfillment of the highest spiritual ambition in his own life. So it was a, a life of intense interiority, of meditation, of prayer, of asceticism, um, without compromising his external commitments, which of course is mainly what we know him for, but it was an intensely introspective, um, uh, meditative, contemplative life that Gandhi lived. Um, so all of these thinkers are remarkable for both their commitment to self-knowledge, but also their ability to uh, open that process to an external reader, their uh, capacity to articulate the methods, the tools, the processes by which they explore themselves and therefore giving you a model and giving you tools through which to engage in that same self-exploration. So the liberal education that has shaped my life has been a liberal education with a strong emphasis on, 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 on self-knowledge and self-examination. And these texts have, are, are in some way particularly uh, fertile, particularly rich um, sources of self-exploration. Great. Again, I should say the book doesn't only highlight authors that have really shaped you and that you consider, in a sense, crucially important, but also provides guidance concerning trends that you find much more problematic. And I wanted us to talk a bit about that because, you know, a key part of the story you tell seems to be that you had a kind of early crush on deconstruction and on postmodernism uh, during your early uh, academic life. And you were sort of intoxicated with the possibility of putting scholarship in the service of dismantling systems of injustice and reducing human suffering. Whereas nowadays you are actually highly critical towards uh, those aforementioned uh, intellectual trends. And in fact, you, you seem to view the dismantling of 
value-based judgments as impediments to a proper liberal arts education. And you even write in the book that the unmooring of human reason from the possibility of ultimate truth in fact undermines all of Western metaphysics, including its ethical and epistemological foundations, if you wish, right? So, so would you perhaps be willing to discuss this youthful crush of yours on deconstruction and postmodernism and how you came to be so disappointed by its objects? And yeah. why do you actually consider their impact so problematic nowadays? Ah, thank you. Yeah, those are, those are a, a set of very um, penetrating questions and com com complex questions. So let, let me begin to uh, peel away a little bit at the questions and, and um, feel free to come back with follow-up or to bring me back to some aspect of the question that maybe I haven't, haven't addressed. Um, but first, with my, my very intense encounter with postmodernism and the construction while I was um, in, in college, um, I studied a, a lot of philosophy and um, both in the Columbia Core Curriculum, which is uh, the general education program that's been most, most important in my formation, but also actual courses in, in the philosophy department and a lot of courses in, in literary theory in the, in the comparative literature um, program. That was my major. I majored in comparative literature as an undergraduate. Um, and the, there's a elegance and a beauty to, to deconstruction and, and postmodernism that's quite uh, in, intoxicating, as you said. And, and there's something um, intellectually very satisfying to uh, be able to kind of crack the code or something. Many of the writers and, you know, to take probably the, you know, this uh, A or the central figure in the construction, Jacques Derrida, it's not an easy writer. Uh, it's a writer full of allusions and um, uh, digressions and non-linear thinking. And there isn't a great effort in those writers to make themselves clear. In fact, there is a suspicion of clarity. There's a suspicion of, of, uh, of logic. There's a suspicion um, of the kind of premises of the epistemological premises of, of rational argumentation. Um, and um, one of the things that that led to, which I continue to appreciate and in many ways live by, is uh, uh, an exposure of the ways in which traditional value systems have been, have been, have provided cover and justification for various forms of exclusion, oppression, marginalization, subjugation of others. Um, so again, that was a kind of exhilarating to see that, exhilarating to see philosophical literary inquiry being turned toward exposing these this systems. Um, but as you say, I eventually became disillusioned. Um, I eventually, and th there, there are two aspects to my disillusion. One was the increasingly obscure and ultimately vacuous or empty rhetorical posture of many of the, of the, of the leading figures, right? Um, so whereas, um, again, in a writer like Derrida, you get a lot of difficulty and that difficulty in part comes from how deeply he is questioning the premises of the 
kind of rhetorical assumptions, metaphysical, epistemological assumptions of, of rational discourse. Uh, then you have a lot of a lot of followers, and even Derrida himself gets very sloppy and self-indulgent at times, and 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 who's complicated and roundabout um, disquisitions end up adding up to either nonsense or trivial, uh, obvious propositions. Um, so I, I, I began to grow in, 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 impatient with that. And, and the more comfortable I felt in my rootedness in philosophy, in my understanding of the tradition that they were discussing, in the language and categories and methods of deconstruction, the more I began to see how much of the um, fashionable, respected, even influential voices were actually quite empty. Uh, I became, be, became very disillusioned with how evasive um, they were, um, how cultish it had, it, it, so much of it was. Um, and then there was another aspect that began to trouble me, which is that um, once you begin to question notions like truth, um, once you begin to question notions like virtue, notions like right, even notions like justice, in the name of what do you do it? What are, what are the ultimate values that you either defend or fight for advance? Um, and those questions, there weren't good answers for. Um, is, there some, is there anything worth fighting for? Or are we simply in a power struggle where the ultimate goal and the ultimate value simply comes from exercising or accumulating power? And so much of the discourse ends up there. So much of the discourse reduces everything to simply a struggle for power. Um, and that did not satisfy me and did not, did not feel kind of either intellectually or psychologically sound um, to me. And it, 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 I also began to see in time how that posture makes it impossible to pursue the project of liberal education I was talking about before, the project of cultivating a human being for the exercise of his or her own freedom. Um, you cannot do that, in my view, apart from a notion of the human good. You must be able to postulate, to theorize at least a provisional notion of the human good. And you must be able to theorize and aim at some notion of truth. The good of the intellect has to be some version of truth. If you undermine those notions, you are left kind of in the air. You are left um, in, a, in a vacuum. Um, and, and that place of being in the air, or that place of being in a vacuum has become quite do dominant in the humanities in the academy. Uh, it's become a very, very dominant discourse and it's, and it's become one of the ideological impediments to the practice of liberal education that I advocate. Um, so that in a nutshell is the trajectory and the critique of postmodernism and the construction that I lay out in the book in some sense, and, and which is very much a part of my own evolution and my own formation. I did not, I kind of rejected or moved uh, beyond the construction of postmodernism from the inside rather than, than, than beginning uh, my relationship with it antagonistically or seeing it as a threat or seeing it as a, uh, as a fad. I actually uh, was very much in there and, and, and my rejection of it, I feel it's a, it's an, it's a, 
it's an informed and um, awakened rejection rather than a reflexive one. Excellent. Again, that's certainly one of the most fascinating aspects of this book that it allows the reader to consider a lot of various arguments, but it's also a personal story and you really get to feel the stakes and one also feels that one finds out a lot about the author. So even though we are speaking here today for the first time, I in many ways have the impression that we already know each other. I certainly <laughs> know you to some extent. And that's, of course, that's, of course, really great. And again, it's wonderful that you also brought back the question of liberal education in your last answer, because I wanted us to go a bit deeper into that question. You already, of course, talked about it during your first answer as well. But, you know, I, I had the impression that you formulate another critique in the book, which is that, that the research ideal remains of rather limited value in undergraduate general education. And the fact that there is this research ideal that dominates the university and that dominates academic career path has in fact been detrimental to liberal education, right? So the sort of the ex existential and ethical questions and the idea that the whole person has to be cultivated as it is understood in liberal education, uh, these are really, uh, if you wish, preoccupations that are only marginally susceptible to scientific investigation, you, you claim in the book. And so the, the practice of liberal education in such a context, right, in such a context where education is understood in rather narrowly instrumental terms, and is often in a sense confused with the idea of training becomes something quite countercultural, right? This is one of the expressions you use in the, in the book. So may I ask how you view the role of liberal education at modern universities? That's of course a very general question and more specifically how the position of liberal education has evolved uh, in the United States in more recent years and what makes it countercultural uh, in your view? Yes, thank you. Another, I think, very um, rich and productive question. Um, you know, one way to think about it is to understand the rise of the research university, um, that, that, that modern dominant institution in higher education. Um, and its origins lie in the, in the 19th century. Um, probably the most important figure is, is Humboldt in, in, in Germany, who um, founds the University of Berlin as a research center. And, and the idea of the research university is kind of straightforward. The research university is going to be an institution that is dedicated to investigation. It's dedicated to the uh, discovery um, and uh, dissemination of new knowledge. The, the, the emphasis is on scientific inquiry. And the scientific paradigm, what I call the research ideal, really dominates. Um, you know, if you take uh, pretty much any of the natural sciences, whether it's biology or chemistry or physics or cosmology, we know more today than we did before. We, every generation absorbs the knowledge of the past and builds on it. So, so knowledge, that scientific knowledge tends to be cumulative. Now, of course, there are revolutions when paradigms are overturned, um, but the big arc is of improving and uh uh, adding to an inherited stock of knowledge. That is the, that, that is the paradigm of scientific knowledge. And that's a very 
obviously a very powerful paradigm and, and, and there are methods of, of investigation, of replication, of dissemination, of verification um, that underpin this very powerful system of knowledge. That has become the leading ideal of the university, the research university, even, even places that are not explicitly research universities say they don't have the resources to have laboratories or, 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 or uh, prominent faculty who are at the forefront of research. It sets the tone for the whole, for all of higher education. Um, that of course you can contrast it with the medieval or going into the Renaissance or, or, or ancient higher learning which was much more concerned with uh, uh, the cultivation of, of, of human beings and the cultivation of a social elites very in, in, in Europe and certainly in kind of the Anglo-American model, the institutions of higher education have their roots in religious, religious institutions and, and the, the training of a clergy and of a social elite um, with a kind of veneration for the past. Um, the, the, the modern university tries to supersede and do better than the past. And the older university kind of reveres and, and um, uh, admires the past. That which I call the research ideal has become so dominant in the university that even in the disciplines within the university that are concerned with human questions, the humanities, the arts, that notion of the role of the university being the discovery and accumulation of knowledge, the discovery of new knowledge and the superseding of old knowledge has become dominant. And that's why if you're a professor in the humanities, for example, the way that you advance in your career is by publishing new research, is by investigating and adding to some body of scholarship and investigation that preceded you whose mastery you demonstrate and whose boundaries you, you expand. Um, and that has, has, has meant a kind of specialization, a kind of uh, uh, conversation that humanists have only with each other, kind of conversation that, have, that, that has moved so far beyond questions that would be important or even understandable to ordinary human beings, to people who are not embedded in a professional pursuit of humanistic scholarship. Um, that has disconnected some, in, to a very large extent, it has disconnected the humanities, the arts, from the kinds of questions, the kinds of conditions, the kinds of issues that matter to say first and second and undergraduate students who, who come into college, many of whom are not going to be scholars, are not going to be uh, professional literary critics or philosophers, but who are going to have their careers. Um, what they find as general education or as humanistic education is so often this highly specialized uh, approach to the study of liberal arts that's unmoored and disconnected from, from, from fundamental questions. Um, so this research ideal has, uh, in a way, robbed the energy and the significance of liberal education from, from the undergraduate curriculum. Um, one other thing I would say 
is that, that the, the model of accumulation of knowledge doesn't really apply to the fundamental questions of liberal education. Um, we don't know what justice is or what love is or how we live with mortality or how we organize our conflicting psychic inclinations. Uh, we don't know better what my duty is to my neighbor uh, simply because uh, we have studied and accumulated data on those questions. Um, humanistic knowledge, the kind of knowledge that liberal education promotes, is not does not proceed by accumulation, does not proceed by, by growth and refinement. I, I, I sometimes point to um, say the treatment in, in, in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, written in the fifth century BC, talking about Athens. There's a famous plague that happens there that hits Athens and there's a very moving and, and uh, detailed and, 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 and gripping account of what happens to the city under the plague. Um, and then you have something like Giovanni Boccaccio's description of the Black Death, the plague in, in Florence in the, in, in, in the 13th century, also gripping and profound and, and what it did to the society. And you have something like uh, Albert Camus' fiction on the plague, or you have like Jose Saramago's novel about blindness, about a fictional plague. We don't, Camus is not better at understanding, illuminating the human experience than Boccaccio is just because he's later. Uh, you know, Rothko is not better than Monet and John Cage is not better than Beethoven. Art, humanistic questions do not proceed by, uh, by, by improvements. It's not, you know, today's technology, today's radios are better than 50 years ago and today's computers are better than 20 years ago. That's not the way the humanistic questions work. And the research ideal functions as if that is the way that humanistic questions function. And that, uh, that institutionalization of the research ideal and its importation into the liberal arts and the humanities has been disastrous for uh, for the humanities in the academy. So that today, and sorry to go on and on, today we often speak about a crisis in the humanities. And there is a crisis in the humanities, but it's not really in the humanities. It's a crisis in the academy. It is an institutional academic crisis. The academic humanities are in crisis. But go to the theater, go to a concert hall, walk down the street, turn on the radio, turn on the TV, and you will see that the humanities are in fact thriving and growing and exploding and, 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 and as meaningful, as moving, as important in people's lives as they have ever been. But go to the academy and it's like walking into a funeral par parlor. They are withering and drying up there. Um, and a big reason for this is this, this dominance of the research ideal. Those are certainly very strong and very important arguments, and I think we could be discussing them for the rest of the day. But I wanted us to move on to something which you touch on, on in the book, but you don't really elaborate on it much. But I thought, you know, it really merited some attention. You, in fact, mentioned in a footnote uh, that... Uh, uh, in recent decades, there has also been a marked interest from universities abroad uh, in the American liberal arts model. 
and that you personally have also been fortunate enough to help launch three notable programs inspired uh, by Colombia's own cure, cure, uh, core curriculum. And these are the uh, general education program at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the core curriculum at Shalem College in uh, Jerusalem, and also the core curriculum at the uh, Universidad Adolfo Ibanez in Santiago, Chile. Uh, I hope I didn't mispronounce that nope, too badly. You got, it. you got it very well. <laughs> right, thank you. And so I wanted to ask you a bit about your experiences with liberal arts across the globe and what your personal experiences may have taught you about the ways that this American model can be adopted in various places. You know, how does liberal education look in a Chinese, uh, in a Middle Eastern or a Latin American context as compared to the US? And what might we learn from some of these adaptations? Um, thank you. It's a, it's a little bit of a paradox that even while the idea, the model of liberal education is under tremendous pressure and, and, and shrinking in the United States, um, it is uh, growing in other parts of the world. Um, that is, um, and, and I should qualify about the United States because the, the, there is a there is also a lot of in, in in the last twenty years there's been a lot of renewal and reinvigoration of liberal education in the United States too. Um, there's a macro trend that goes away from it, but there are there, there's a, an important micro trend among uh, among institutions reviving a certain kind of liberal education. Um, but I think part of what has uh, drawn the interest of universities around the world, societies around the world in the American liberal arts model is a the success of the Amer of American higher education. Um, American higher education is kind of the envy of the world. We have, uh, the, the, the most um, producers of, the, of you know, more Nobel Prizes, of more publications, of more discoveries. Um, and uh, I think people who have looked to America to find what is the key ingredient, why, what is it? Many of them have landed on this idea of liberal education that in the United States, almost every undergraduate degree includes a substantial number of courses in, in the humanities, in literature, in art, in, in philosophy, in history, that have nothing to do with professionalization. That's a peculiarity of the American system and many schools or many governments, societies have identified that as possibly a key to the, the, the success of American higher education. Another, another um, uh, I think, prompt has been the increasing complexity of the world. I think increasingly people come to understand that uh, individuals are going to hold not one job, but many jobs, not one career, not one specialty, but many specialties throughout their lives. So the emphasis has begun to shift away from specific knowledge acquisition to more competencies, the more preparing an individual that can adapt, that can learn, that can excel at many different kinds of, uh, of specialized tasks. That again, harkens to a more liberal approach to education. Questions of adaptation are, are, are important. Um, you know, I, I've, I've worked with this 
one school in, in, in Hong Kong, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, but have also spoken to many other um, uh, representatives from many other institutions in China, both in Hong Kong and in mainland China. And one of the great paradoxes that a society like China is caught in is that they want liberal education. They want their students to think creatively, to be innovative, to be uh, breaking boundaries. But the kind of liberal education that cultivates those uh, attitudes and, that, and those dispositions is politically threatening. Um, that is, it is incompatible with certain aspects of the political structure in China. So there is this, there is this uh, very difficult uh, uh, problem of how do you incorporate, how do you educate individuals for the kind of liberal thinking that produces the most uh, innovation and the most uh, groundbreaking um, activity? How do you cultivate that while maintaining a fairly closed political system. Um, in, 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 say, in Shalem, in Jerusalem, you have a whole different set of questions about how do you incorporate a Judeo-Western tradition and a Muslim tradition into the study of, uh, of undergraduate grade books? Um, and, and how does that relate to questions of identity in the student? Um, a whole different set of questions. Um, my the, the school that I have worked most closely with is Universidad Adolfo Ibañez in Chile, uh, which has a society that in, that, that in some ways is like the American society in that it is so strongly the product of European influence. Its universities, its religion, um, its politics have been so shaped by the European, the Western European tradition that many of the traditional canonical texts that make up, say, the Columbia core curriculum are equally relevant, equally um, uh, important in, in understanding Chile and, and Latin American society. So they have uh, put in place a program that very closely replicates the Columbia core curriculum. Um, and I should say those three, those three schools are schools that I have worked with um, directly, personally, I've visited all of them. I've worked with their faculty and their leadership, but there are many other uh, liberal arts efforts in England, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in other places in Latin America uh, that are capturing and recovering what is in the end a European tradition. The liberal arts are a European tradition. Um, and, and, and many schools, I think, are involved in the process of recuperating that tradition and bringing it back as an ingredient of higher education. And that's a really fascinating uh, panorama you have just painted. And you also mentioned uh, during your answer how uh, the, the core curriculum in Chile is in many ways quite similar to, to the one at uh, Colombia. And as a final question, I wanted to return to that debate around the core uh, curriculum, which has been sort of raging uh, also in recent years. And, you appear to be very much in favor of uh, a set of courses in literary and philosophical classics, as well as in art, music, and science, in which all students uh, would study and discuss a pre prescribed list of works, right? A list of works that begin in antiquity and then moves uh, chronologically to the present. And in, you argue in the book that such a curriculum offers a considered view 
of just what aspects of our intellectual and cultural heritage are most worth their attention, that is to say the attention of students, and that a, a great book is one that has meaning and continues to have meaning for a variety of people over a long period of time, right? That's sort of the ecumenical uh, principle uh, that you that you use to, so to say, define in this way what, what a great book is. So again, you, you underline that there must be a judicious selection of books that is also sensitive to contemporary contexts and contemporary concerns and insist, and I'm quoting here again, that the criterion of democratic representation appropriate for politics is not appropriate for selecting common curricula and to adopt it as such is to abandon the very idea of education and to turn students into interest groups. Now, I think this is, is a fascinating statement, which again, I think we could be discussing for a much longer, but I really wanted to just ask you a final question. And that is admittedly another very large question, but would you care to comment on how the core curriculum has evolved at Columbia in recent decades? And would you perhaps be willing to, so to say, sketch some of the key principles of selection that you would apply personally if you were, so to say, completely free to design such a curriculum? Yeah, thank you. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the, by the depth of your questions and by how, um, how well you have understood and, 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 and synthesized uh, the arguments I make and the, and the major points I make in the book. Um, so it's important uh, in my view that faculty give serious thought, that university leadership give serious thought to organizing a view about our past and about what things are most worthwhile a student's attention and that we present that to the student. We owe that to the students. It's our responsibility to give the students that version. It's not an ultimate version. It's not the final version. It is always a provisional version. It's open to revision. The student, him or herself, will question it and revise it and criticize it. Uh, but they need to have our best effort. Um, they, The student does not come in having read the canon. They have, do not come in with, with anything like a comprehensive overview of, uh, of history, of philosophy, of the development of thought. We, the faculty as a body have that. And I think it is our responsibility to come together and, uh, and present something to the student, which the student can, again, reject, accept, revise, criticize, but there is something there and we ourselves can reject and accept and criticize and revise. Um, what most schools have done is abandoned that project. They have, they have let faculty members, individual faculty members create their own curricula, what they think is important with no effort to achieve any kind of cohesive view so that students who can, sometimes students who go to the same institution and get the same degree have radically different educations and have radically different sense of what, is, uh, of what matters and therefore no common, no common reference points. Um, Columbia organizes its, its two big survey type courses for first and second year students, one in literature, one in philosophy, around a common reading list of, of works. So every, um, every three years, the faculty gets together and revises this list and agrees on um, you know, maybe, maybe 25 works that a student is going to see in a year. Um, some of the principles that govern that are, um, are as follows. 
One is uh, Colombia, and I, and I support this, I, I think it's the right approach, has a, a, a commitment to a chronological overview. That is, we are going to present a course that, that, that begins as far back as we can go in antiquity. So in the case of literature, that usually means Homer. You might be able to go a little further back if you're willing to consider fragments and, 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 and uh, less complete works. In the case of social political thought, it's usually Plato. You can go back a little before to the pre-Socratics and find, but we're gonna go back there and then move chronologically. So that is, that is one commitment um, that organizes it. A second commitment in the Columbia program is that it's Western, that it is going to focus on the tradition of thought and debate and literature out of which contemporary European and American societies emerge. Um, that is a commitment that I think if, if I were putting together a program today from scratch, I would not hold. I think I would take a more global approach, but that's, that, that, that is left over in the Columbia program for, from the early 20th century when it was formulated. Um, another commitment is to examine works of major cultural significance. That is, in some sense, we're going to choose works whose impact on the way we see the world is, is, is substantial. Um, uh, a fourth principle is that they should be works that are accessible to a student in the classroom. That is, there is th they need to be works that, uh, that are teachable. And let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're going to teach Kant um, in, in a course like this, not in a philosophy course, but in a general course, you probably can't do the critique of pure reason. It's too long, too complicated. You might have to do something like the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Or uh, you probably can't do all of Dante's Divine Comedy because it's too large, too big, too complex. So you might have to do the Inferno or the Purgatorio or selections from all three. Um, so one criteria is kind of teachability, works that, are, um, that, 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 that have a functional capacity to be taught at this level of generality because you're not teaching experts. You are treating the text from a certain kind of generalist distance rather than from a specialist um, scholarly. Um, I, th I guess another principle that you, that I, that I think I, I would apply is, um, uh, and this is, this goes more to the form than to the content is that, that the, that the courses be taught in small discussion based settings. That is that you read this text as a group and you talk about them as a group rather than the professor coming in and, uh, and giving lectures about them. I guess one other thing that I would say is that as you move closer to the contemporary world, um, it is worth uh, making an effort to, in to include voices that are traditionally excluded from the canon. Um, I think that the, the thrust to inclusion and representation gains some validity as you come to the present and more and more voices are part of the conversation. Thank you so much for this very well-considered answer, which also draws uh, on a lot of personal experience. I, I have been having the pleasure today of talking to Roosevelt Montas, who has published a really fascinating book, 
under the title Rescuing Socrates. And it's been really a great pleasure to discuss with him, uh, not least because I myself studied liberal arts as a scholarship student uh, back in my youth. And I also uh, teach uh, in such a program these days uh, in Maastricht. And I've really learned a lot from this fascinating book with all its insights. Thank you so much for taking on all these large questions and addressing them so substantially, Roosevelt. Thank you for your really excellent questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you have also enjoyed our conversation. Until the next time.